Kia ora. Welcome to this edition of the Morrisville Baptist Church Podcast. Thank you for connecting with us to discover more about our faith community. Feel free to visit our website at morrisvillebaptist.com. I hope this message is an encouragement to you. One, there was one Sunday morning and uh, a chap uh, left, left church and he um, spoke to the pastor on the way out and he said... Um, Pastor, I found that worry works. And uh, the pastor said, oh, trying to disguise the surprise in his voice. And, oops, I'm losing that, I think. Um, and um, he said, oh, how's that? And uh, the guy said, well, everything I worry about, it never happens. Uh, yeah, I realize I've, I've been there where you, something is of concern to you and it just keeps going, you know, you think it's going to come right, it's not, it doesn't come right, but there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? Um, we often worry about things that are not going to happen anyway. All right, it's probably got nothing to do with the sermon, but anyway, one minute wisdom. Um, let's turn together to uh, Matthew 26. And we're going to read from verses uh, from verse um, 46, sorry, 47, through to uh, the end of our section, which is at verse 68. <coughs> While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. And they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who hit you? Oh, there's been a lot of speaking, hasn't there? Do you want to just... Uh I don't know, you can stand up, have a bit of a stretch around. I've got a little bit more speaking. It's going to be a little bit more longer than 12 minutes, I'm sorry. Um, but, um, yeah, just make yourselves <laughs> as comfortable as you can. <coughs> Not too comfortable. Hear the words. <coughs> um, you know, there's been so much said about this chapter over the centuries that you wonder what more is there to say. Although I think that it's probably true that uh, God would want us to be just as familiar with the whole scripture as what we are about this story. Uh, and there'd still be plenty to say, wouldn't there, because it's a living word. So here goes uh, on what I think God has laid in my heart to say from this passage. And may the Spirit take what I say and touch each of your hearts in some way. This passage raises the question which I suspect many of us have grappled with at some point. Who was responsible for the death, for Christ's death? Jesus himself said in John 10:18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. There are a number of players exposed to us in this momentous event of history. There's Judas in our passage. There's the religious leader's lynch mob. There's uh, the disciples, and finally the religious leaders themselves. And in the next chapter we have Pilate and uh, another wound up crowd. So can anyone be held responsible? Jesus said no one takes his life from him. I don't think we can truly work out this appar these apparent contradictions. There's something bigger in the counsels of God that preserves his purity and holiness while also using way the waywardness of men to accomplish his purposes. It's a bit like in the book of Jeremiah, if you've ever read that book in the Old Testament, and God uh, talks about Nebuchadnezzar being his servant, exacting judgment on his people. And sometimes even in the same chapter, um, he says that he's going to destroy ne uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you know, on the one hand, Nebuchadnezzar's a servant, on the other hand, Nebuchadnezzar's Nebuchadnezzar is actually probably one of the cruelest tyrants in history and God is going to judge him. So here in our passage the question arises, did Judas' betrayal of Jesus mean that he was responsible for the death of the Son of God? Judas certainly ended up feeling responsible for a great wrong and his response is recorded in the next chapter and I'm going to leave that to whoever's preaching next week. But a few weeks ago uh, Will presented a prima facie case against Judas, for, for Judas' culpability. He made the point that Judas' action was premeditated. But Revelation 13.8 uh, actually also says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. And there's a similar thought comes through in 1 Peter 1. 
And so that's kind of given rise to the thought that um, um, somehow sin entering God's creation was something that was fully expected before that creation took place. And that is, on the one hand, not surprising if you believe in a God who is eternal and to whom time is not a constraint to knowledge because he created time and lives outside it. On the other hand, we ask why would he foresee all this misery that sin would produce and go through with creating things that way? Why not create things differently to avoid all this mayhem? Theologians grapple with answering this dilemma, and I'm not going there this morning, except to say that I think one of the keys uh, involves an understanding of love. The essence of God is love. And love involves a choice. And choice implies freedom. It's one of the reasons that, for the most part, Christians value democracy. To be sure, it's not a perfect system. Theocracy, the rule of of a benevolent God, is the perfect system, but I'm afraid we're going to have to wait for the millennial reign of Christ for that one. Democracy does at least have the possibility of freedom, which most other systems of power do not. And this freedom of choice is also why we as believers ought not to coerce people to accept Christ. Unlike most, if not all, other religions where sometimes extreme coercion is acceptable. That, of course, does not rule out our impassioned pleading with people because we know what is at stake uh, if they reject our message. It does, however, I think, rule out pointless, heated argument, manipulation, threats, and so on. The power of prayer and a ready answer for our demonstrated faith are the weapons of choice for us. So the Son of God came into this world and subjected himself to the exercise of free will of the people of his day. He had the power to lay down his life and he had the power to take it up again. He had complete freedom, but he chose to be subject to the working of evil so that he could accomplish a plan hatched by him and his Father before creation to secure a people whose freedom to choose sent them off track, but who would, on the completion of his work, have freedom to love him as he loved them. So what about Judas, one of Jesus' insiders? Today, if you watch some of the dramas that um, uh, are reenactments of this scene, you'll you'll often see uh, a shadowy figure on Judas' shoulder who's meant to represent Satan, how responsible are we for the wrong in our lives and in the world? Was Satan really the one responsible for the crucifixion? Were the people just pawns in some spiritual tussle? To be sure, both parties had a plan. God to bring salvation to the world, Satan to destroy that plan. Although it is a moot point as to how deeply he understood it, because he ended up actually facilitating the accomplishment of God's perfect plan. That plan which reunites us with him, with God, in our pre-fall closeness, in and through all the evil. So am I saying then that God required evil for his plan to succeed? Something sounds a bit off there, doesn't it? Look at it from another direction, perhaps. It's only because evil is here 
that the plan was needed. If Satan had not fallen by using his free will wrongly, and we had not succumbed to his tempting, we wouldn't have needed a plan of salvation. Christ would not have had to die. But that's not the reality. And God dealt with the reality. And I think it's wonderful the way God wants to deal with our realities. We don't have to hide away from God. And if you're trying to hide away from God this morning, can I suggest that you're on the wrong track? So our freedom to live in perfection for eternity caused us, by its wrong use, to be condemned to all that is wrong and evil. This, by the way, I think, is the crux of the answer to the frequently repeated argument against a good God ruling the universe. God is responsible for implanting us with the freedom to choose as an act of love. Humans are responsible for the distortion and the wrong use of that freedom. We made a mess of the freedom that we were entrusted with. But God had a plan to restore it permanently. But God, did you pick up that little phrase? Probably not, it's just part of our normal conversation, isn't it? But this, but that, but God. You know, during uh, COVID, uh, we picked up uh, one of the online messages um, where there was a sermon that highlighted that little phrase, but God. Here are some scriptures. Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Acts 3.15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God provides a way of escape. Uh, sorry, Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. Like the rest, we were objects of wrath, but God. It actually, um, it actually says there, um, like, like the rest, we were objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It's a wonderful phrase especially if you need to encourage your faith um, in, a, in a situation where it seems hopeless or you're feeling hopeless for whatever reason, but God. Anyway, that was a bit of an aside. But um, Anyway, the interaction of the, uh, the spiritual, whether good or evil, God and Satan, with the choices of people can be difficult to delineate. Where my human response and the spiritual power stop and start is something of a mystery. Jesus gave up his life willingly, but Judas acted wrongly in betraying him. We're integrally involved. Of course you say, that's a bit of a stupid comment. Yeah, but what about its implications? If we don't make the right choices, the Spirit of God is limited in how he can work in us. Think about that. The one who has the power behind, was, the, was the power behind the word of God at creation and, and, and things were spoken and they happened can be limited by us. And it's not just our decisions. Perhaps more importantly, God's power comes as we act. Faith is a great activator. 
Let's uh, say that this morning you strike up a conversation with someone next to you after church, and um, as you're talking to them, you feel that God is prompting you to pray for them. Now, if you respond in faith, God's power is going to come into that situation and do what neither of you could do for yourselves, but which also might not have happened, at least not at that time or in that way, if you didn't make the right choice and act according to God's promptings. Now, I know that also God works just as we are as his believers. I think it's something to do with, the, uh, I think that's um, what the, the, the phrase um, in, I think it's in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talks about the fragrance of Christ. You know, there is, there is that as it, that is exuded from us as well. God, God uses us even when we don't, are not aware of it, but you get my point, I think. Um, in a similar way, a wrong, wrong decisions opens the door and presents an opportunity for the enemy to move. And there is an interaction here with our fallen nature also, described variously in the Bible as the old man, the flesh, the sinful self, the old nature, and so on. Just as when I make a right choice, and especially when I act on that choice, God's Spirit aids me and empowers me and makes God's work happen, so it is when I make a wrong choice, and especially if I act on it by word or deed, and word's pretty important, I can facilitate the outworking of evil. So how responsible are we for the wrong in our lives and in the world? I am content to accept that there are some things in the counsels of God which I am not privy to. And that is the way it must be if he is God and I am creature. My favourite uh, outburst for something that I can't explain is Deuteronomy 29, 29. There are some things the Lord our God has kept secret, but he has given us his law and we are, and our descendants are to obey it forever. It's enough sometimes to put our energies into obeying what we do know, not hassling about what we don't know. Yes, we can give some satisfactory answers to some of it, but only tr God can truly tie it all together. Sometimes it's when we try to tie it together in a neat box, we produce more confusion than light. At times we just need to accept the truth of the components of a situation and leave the tying together to God. Judas was responsible, Jesus chose, Satan was at work. So we move to verse uh, 51, um, and uh, we see Peter's faux pas there. Okay, so G Judas has betrayed Jesus, and Jesus is arrested, and uh, one of his disciples, uh, whom uh, John reveals as um, uh, Peter, cut off the high priest's servant's ear but a mistimed swing of his sword. Good intentions have to be translated into right actions. Peter got it right on the good intentions, standing by his master, but his actions were wrong. Sometimes we can't be careful enough in checking our intentions against God's will and God's purposes. Not in a paralyzing way, but in being open before the Lord to him wanting things done differently. Even as believers, we can be wide of God's mark. Humility requires that we submit our way of thinking to the scrutiny of God's spirit. Most of you will be familiar with uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own insight. 
Peter stood by his Lord and stood up for him in his hour of need. But his solution was not God's. From our benefit of 2020 hindsight, we can see how divergent his actions were to God's plan. Jesus affirms that what is happening is not random. In verse 53, he says, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus doesn't say what scriptures he has in mind, but many of you will be familiar with um, Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant, and, and there are passages all through the Old Testament scattered through which speak about the Messiah. And the Passover itself, which Jesus has just observed, is perhaps the greatest picture of God's ultimate plan of salvation. So in verse 55, we're introduced to the crowd, uh, and uh, Jesus is shrouded in darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane there, and the darkness of the people all around him falling away, failing him. The Creator mocked, treated with contempt, failed by his creatures. You couldn't write a worse script, really. But that same Creator, the Son of God, wasn't himself in darkness. He walked in the light of God, the Godhead's stunning plan for full and final salvation. He challenged the crowd about coming in the dark cover of night when he had operated fully in the light of day every day in the temple courts. And Luke informs us that Jesus also said, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus says this is all according to expectation. The prophet's words are being fulfilled. Matthew doesn't tell us much about the crowd. But Luke adds a little bit more detail in telling us that it, it was led by the chief priests and the temple guards. We are told it was a large crowd, so probably plenty of malcontents and hangers-on. They had choices. They were not pawns in God's great plan. They had some responsibility for this mammoth injustice that was being worked out. And now we come to those very few words that so often cause our hearts to sink. Well, that's my testimony. Then his disciples deserted him and fled. Who among us has never felt that sinking feeling of having let the Lord down? Maybe we've even fled from a situation where we should have stood up for the Lord. But at least Peter followed at a distance to see what might pan out. Perhaps he was mindful of his brash promise a little bit earlier in the chapter where he said, uh, no, Lord, it won't happen that way. I'll die with you. And if you read John's account there um, to these events, it seems that he was also there. Um, I, I don't think I was really familiar with that. Um, uh, but uh, it was him that um, um, got Peter into the in the courtyard where he then ended up denying Jesus three times because John uh, knew um, either Caiaphas or some in his household and he was invited in uh, into the house probably right close to where Jesus was and then we don't hear anything more about that John doesn't comment any more about it I don't know what you know maybe Jesus just sort of quietly said to him you know just let it be let it be and and that was it I don't know we don't know but um, um, Caiaphas clearly had a large house as the whole Sanhedrin gathered there 
The Sanhedrin consisted of three groups and was the Jewish high court. It was made up of the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, a total of 71 members. It was given great authority by the Romans, but not for capital punishment, not to deliver capital punishment. What a testimony to Jesus' integrity and character that they didn't even try to gain facts, but straight away resorted to false evidence. They couldn't even get false evidence to stick until a couple of guys totally misrepresented what Jesus said about destroying the temple and he would rebuild, rebuild it in three days. It seems that what they said um, distorted Jesus' words to mean something akin to a charge of uh, terrorism. This fellow said he's going to bomb the temple, kind of idea. Still, Jesus remained in total self-control. He just listened to the nonsense and probably felt deep sorrow for the participants. Not so the high priest. His temperature was rising. He probably realized this mock-up of a trial was not going all to plan. He stood to his feet and he charged Jesus under oath by the living God. No one had yet mentioned that Jesus as mentioned Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. But Caiaphas threw everything at Jesus to invoke a response. This meant that Jesus had a legal duty to respond. It succeeded. Jesus was not going to leave any doubt on this score. Yes, it is as you say, he responded. For Jesus spoke not just to Caiaphas, but to the whole gathering and said that their next encounter with him would be as the one who sits on the right hand of the throne of God, and they would see him coming in the clouds of heaven. Finally, something was going right for Caiaphas. If you're not going to believe Jesus is who he says he is, then this is a clear case of blasphemy. Don't you agree, he said to the, tem uh, to the assembled court. Deserving death was their response. And then they indulged in indignities toward Jesus, mocking him, insulting him, hitting him. You know, this trial was totally illegal um, under Jewish law. And here are some reasons why. <coughs> Excuse me. According to Jewish law, no criminal case could be heard over the Passover season. Secondly, only acquittal could be pronounced on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to be given the space of at least one night to allow the feelings of mercy to arise. Interesting concept, isn't it? Thirdly, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have contact with one another. Fourthly, according to Jewish law, false, witnesses, false witness was punishable by death. As far as we know, nothing was done to the many false witnesses in Jesus' trial. And there are other aspects to why this was an illegal trial. You know, I think for many of us, false accusation would be right up there with rejection and the like. People telling lies about you, slandering you, distorting the truth about you, being misunderstood. They're all pretty hard feelings to deal with, aren't they? Jesus endured these and more. I started my message by asking who was responsible for Jesus' death. 
Now, passage this morning only takes us as far as the trial of Jesus, and the narrative, as the narrative unfolds, we uh, get um, over the next uh, chapter, um, other players come to light, like Pilate uh, and Herod in some Gospels. You know, sadly, the establishment church over many centuries blamed the Jewish race for the death of Jesus and justified pogroms and persecution against the Jews on that basis. But it seems abundantly clear on both an historical level and a theological level that we are all responsible, the whole fallen human race. If we were physically there, we would have fitted into one of the culpable groups, I suggest, even if only a member, as a member of one of the crowds. There's a Negro spiritual, um, yeah, I probably should say African-American spiritual, shouldn't I? But I think most of us know what I mean. Um, it says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Anybody know that one? Beautiful little song. Very um, few words in it, but packed full of meaning. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And it goes on, were you there when they laid him in the tomb and so on. On a theological level, we all had to be represented at the cross. Jesus' sacrifice is once only and for all human beings. All of us are guilty of sending Jesus to the cross. But at the same time, Jesus chose willingly to give up his life. Don't try and make the two meet. Just be lost in wonder, awe, and praise. We need to own our responsibility in being represented at the cross in order that we can better understand the enormity of our forgiveness and restoration. A few moments ago, I spoke about the things that push our buttons, things like false accusation and injustice. And uh, this morning, in fact, it was this morning, it was as I was, uh, before this morning, it was as I was preparing, but I still feel as though the Lord has impressed upon me to close my message for praying for a release for some of you from the sense of injustice. We can mostly take such things in our stride as we move through life. But if the Lord wants to touch you and release you this morning, uh, if somewhere along your life's journey that injustice was great, or at least at the time it seemed great, maybe it was a long time ago, you've not been able to process it properly and put it behind you, it presents as a barrier that makes you feel as though you're limping a bit through life, maybe even limping a lot. There are three things I want us to consider. Firstly, the events of the cross tell you that your Saviour experienced injustice more deeply than you. And that's not belittling what big thing it became for you, but it's acknowledging that Jesus knows and understands. Indeed, he was with you when the events, or events, plural, happened. Though you probably didn't know it at the time. There's this whole substitutionary thing that Jesus' sacrifice um, produces that we haven't even touched on. He became sin that I could, so that I could be made clean. He was punished for, so that I could be forgiven. He was wounded so that I could be healed. He was rejected so that I can be accepted. 
in all and you could go. I ask you this morning to acknowledge in your heart that Jesus suffered injustice so that you could be set free. Secondly, I'll pray a simple prayer, but you need to pray along in faith in your heart as well. And thirdly, this will in all likelihood not be the end of the matter, may only be the beginning of a process, or it may be a key that unlocks a door, but you're still going to have to clean out the room. There'll be choices that you have to make, laying down some things, some attitudes maybe, that were dear, even though they may have been poisoning you. You may need a trusted friend to help you through the process. The process might be easier than you think, or it might be hard. But if you're prepared to trust the one who's been down your road before, he will. He will provide for you. So we're going to have a few moments of silence now and just connect into the Lord and be ready to receive from him. And now, for those of you for whom this is not something that is relevant, just reach out in prayer for your fellow believers uh, as, we, um, as we pray. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne of grace. We come with praise and worship to you. You who are the Son of God, the living God, who humbled yourself and came and died as a criminal for our sakes, for our freedom, for our eternal future. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we exalt you. We praise you, Lord, that you went all the way through with this plan that was so cruel and so painful. Not just the physical pain, we can imagine that, but the pain of separation from your Father, we can't imagine the depth of that. We praise you that that new covenant that you formed in your blood brings to us all the power of heaven, all the resources of heaven. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And so together we take up our authority in Jesus' name. He has raised us up to rule with him in the heavenly realms, the scripture tells us. And we would break every bondage over the lives of the, your people, Lord, that would hold them in uh, captivity to, um, to situations in their past that um, are unhealthy and unhelpful for them and causing them to limp through. Lord, would you, would you in your mercy touch each one now who reaches out to you and break the power over their lives. Set them free. We take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your wonderful love for us. Your love that has no boundaries. Lord, um, I pray for those that have uh, reached out in their heart to you. And maybe just that prayer of breaking the power over something will be 
what they need, but for many, they will need to continue to walk through this journey. And I pray and I know, Lord, that as they reach out to you in faith and in truth, that you will provide for them. I ask, Lord, that you show them the way, shine your light on their path, and may they walk fully and no longer with a limp. We praise you and we thank you for your love in Jesus' name.